You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Well, I suppose to get started, uh, let's take a look at uh, where we left off. We went through two of the the hopeful resurrection sides of of the initiation rites that you you've shared with us, Richard. And now we're going to dive into the third one, which is, uh, it is true that your life is not about you. Ugh, that's a a hard one. Rather, your life is hidden with Christ and God. He is your life, and when He is revealed, you will be revealed in all your glory with Him. And that comes from Colossians 3, 4. So as we look at this hopeful resurrection aspect of this third initiation, that our lives are not about us, you talk about um, how our life being hidden with Christ invites us into a shift into our true being, rather than the false trappings of who we attach ourselves to be in our doing, in terms of how we identify or how we like to build up our ego or personality, as I was just sharing the my own attachment to these things that I was doing was helping me feel good about myself. Um, so this time of quarantine has brought so much of this to bear for so many of us, and we're facing such a sense of radical uncertainty of how long will this last? And, you know, what about my job? Um, how does contemplation help us in this process of rewiring to a different selfhood hidden in Christ? If we're faithful to a uh, to a contemplative practice, a prayer practice, if you just to encounters with the holy, with the absolute, what will happen over time is that uh, our our self created boundaries of I'm this and I'm not that I'm uh, uh, which is always a contradistinction. Uh, we, it's like we create ourselves by making a distinction from I, I'm male and not female or whatever it might be. That uh, takes on less and less importance. And what falls apart is our strong sense of individuality, uh, our individualism. Maybe that's the more negative word. I'm not sure how you use it. And I know both of you have heard me say that I believe the the um, the individualization of the gospel message, perhaps more than anything else, has undone it. So let me come now back at it this way: instead of starting with, you know, uh, building up the individual, and then trying to fit him or her into the collective, I think a, a mystic starts with the huge collective. This is the wave of, of reality and of history. And uh, then finds itself there as a part of it, as a, a increasingly willing participant. Uh, so the burden isn't on the individual anymore to do it right or to carry guilt when it's done it wrong. That's why the mystic is joyful or the contemplative is joyful. Whereas when you're agonizing about your own moral perfection, your own moral bank account, your own, uh, 
you're you never make it you just never make it you're you're always um moving into various forms of denial whereas when you have nothing to prove anymore you don't you just you've heard me say it this is i'm sure you two are sick of it but that i am who i am who i am who i am <laughs> and um I'm going to keep trying to do it with greater love, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time protecting these ego boundaries of this self called Richard and making people like me and uh, making people want me. So instead of my life is about me, what have I done with it? I'm about life. Life is the big category, and I'm one little instance of it, taking my part in the great parade. Uh, you know, after nature shows, I think I like history shows best. And <clears throat> every time you see one, you recognize all those people are gone. And <clears throat> that's going to get us into the next one, I guess. And they're all gone, gone, gone. Uh, and where did they go? Well, my understanding is they re-entered the body of Christ. As one little finger, if you want to, you know, materialize it. Not the whole body. None of us are the whole body. And that's what Paul was trying to say. The eye cannot say to the foot, I do not need you. No, I need your gifts, and you need my gifts. And uh, that's a collective view of reality. And I think initiation frees you to not need to build up the individual self. I'm not against, clearly not, against self-awareness or self-development or self-education. But notice in all three of those is the same word self. Uh, it's far too much self. And what we got to get people on is a path of reality being done in them, through them, with them, as them. And it, it just allows you to take yourself much less seriously and to be natural. Uh, instead of perfect. Natural instead of perfect. And I don't mean natural in an outrageous way, like you fours try to be. <laughs> Every episode. It's got to be at least it's one. Gotta right? be at least one. got to get it in one time. Oh, God. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. No, it's so good. It's deserved. <laughs> It's natural in a, a non-trying uh, way. Mm. Yeah. And I, the reason I can tease you, because I know you understand it. <laughs> so bring me, bring me back to where you really want me to go now. Well, actually, if it's okay with you, Paul, I, I have a question that pertains to my foreness. So since you uh, brought it up. <laughs> it's been served on a platter. I think you have to go with it. <laughs> So in this in this in this time that we're all facing together there's obviously waves of of emotion and 
and recognition and awareness that hit us all at different points in different ways. And I was processing death with my best friend um, recently, like you do. And uh, we were noticing how our Enneagram defaults are processing this pandemic, this moment, what we're facing. And she as a nine was talking about um, how she's trying to hold it all together and and lean into her one wing and do everything perfectly. And she says, if I just wash and, disinf- and disinfect everything and do my social dis- distancing perfectly, as long as, as, I, long do as I do everything, everything perfectly, perfectly and I follow, I follow the, the rules, rules, all, all shall, shall be well. Be well. <laughs> whereas, fun, yeah. There it is. So Whereas for me, uh, the most unique and special of, of all the numbers, I find myself <laughs> really facing my own mortality um, with uh, with all kinds of feelings and the need to express it artistically at every moment, you know, so many feelings and so many songs and um, almost as if I just keep making art and keep finding meaning and beauty in this moment that I will hold the universe in coherence. <laughs> so how, how can this tenet <laughs> of our life being hidden in Christ, the collective body of Christ, and always having been in Christ, steady us into a radical peace in our embrace of, of grace, even uh, regardless of whatever number we may preference uh, on the Enneagram or whatever tendencies we might have. Who we are at the deepest, most objective level is who we are in the mind of God. Now, God doesn't have a mind, uh, but remember, all spiritual language is metaphor. That's the best we can do. So we have to say, in the mind of God, uh, there came together a complex of choices, realizations, desires that became Paul, that became Bree, that became Richard. And all God wants is for that to become who it already is. It it exists in the mind of God. And according to many of our greatest mystics, like John of the Cross, uh, every, uh, and Don Scotus, everyone is a different representation of the eternal Christ. And if Christ is infinite and eternal, that isn't an unreasonable idea. Uh, There's enough space for you to reflect a bit, and me to reflect a bit. And uh, what is wonderful is when we can, are given the eyes to see that in other people, that, you know, she is this. She doesn't need to be that. Um, as a one, it makes me so much less judgmental, so much easier to accept and smile at human vagaries and, and eccentricities from my vantage point. That's all they ever are from my vantage point. So I thought Paul used a very clever phrase there, hidden with Christ. It isn't obvious. You have to look for it. You have to want to honor it and love it. And once you can... You see it. Once you're willing to say, that's Christ, that woman who otherwise would turn me off. Uh, She's just a different 
aspect of Christ. Uh, and we all are, but it's hidden. It isn't given uh, to the eyes that don't seek or don't desire or don't want and don't pray. So a lot of people never get there. They put it off till what we call heaven. But you and I can start now <laughs> with greater or lesser success. I'm not saying you, you succeed every day with every person, but it'll grow on you. So the body of Christ is the real thing. What Scotus called the first idea in the mind of God was Christ, to create this universal manifesting reality. And everything that we look upon is part of that one manifesting reality that we call the body of God or the body of Christ. But it's hidden from our eyes till we go through some filters, I guess, mm. or stages, whatever word you want to use. I've always loved the, the way that you've defined a Christian as someone who sees Christ everywhere. And how that is our work is to look for Christ everywhere, um, and so how do we how do we see the whole in the particular? How do we see the whole of Christ? And you know, I love the way you're you're nuancing this in this in this tenet, and how you know some folks have that impulse to try to be the whole of Christ or to be important, and the Christ is offering a place of humility and of enoughness. And, and in this quarantine, I know um, there are a lot of us, whether we're parents or those who have lost work, where they feel like they're not doing enough, they're not loving enough, they're not being present enough. What, do you have any words of wisdom to offer in what does it mean to be enough when you're being about life and life is not about you? Oh God, help me to say it well. Um... You've heard me say in other contexts that when you begin to find yourself in the kingdom of God, as Jesus calls it, what, you, what gives it away for me is when you stop counting. You've heard me say that. When you stop measuring, when you stop weighing, when you stop comparing. And once you say that, you'll recognize how much you do compare. You do weigh, you do count, I deserve, or I earned, or uh, she owes me, or I, it's, it's like a nonstop game of spiritual capitalism. And uh, I think it's one reason it is so hard to convert a, a Western-raised person, because we're raised to think capitalistically to the core of our being. It's all about weighing and measuring and counting. Um, and I'm not saying I've succeeded at it. In fact, it usually has to be a failure to, to succeed at it that makes me re-desire it. And I've always said, well, you've heard me that too. My own preaching is mostly to myself. And then I'll remember, Richard, you know, you're counting, 
you're weighing, you're measuring. Um, it, it, it never brings happiness because you always come out short or you always exaggerate your importance. And that's called hubris in Greek theater, as you know. I think it's also called social media, what you just said. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, what a freedom when we don't have to think that way. If we could really think, you know, an ill-clad old lady sitting in the back pew of church because she's afraid of her clothing is just as much a beloved of God as the beautiful lady who's walking up the main aisle, you know? That, that's transformation. You know, if we want to make it practical, until it gets that practical, uh, that they're both equally images of God. And in fact, if we look for image and likeness, perhaps, I don't know in all cases, but if we get to know the old lady in the back pew, she might have more likeness to Christ than the beautiful lady walking up the center aisle. But the image is identical in all creation. It's like the, the divine stamp, the copyright mark that God puts in everything that God creates. That's equally distributed. That's such a powerful uh, invitation for those of us who are on social media. I mean, I kind of said it jokingly, but not really. Oh, I know you did. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's built on, you know, look at me, you know, look at the nice things I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing for my community. Uh, look at this amazing bread I'm baking. I did that once actually at the start of the month. I felt really good about it. <laughs> and then after I ate the whole loaf of bread, I didn't feel so good. Um, but that that tendency that we have of comparison is so strong even now even when when this pandemic is showing us we're one we are in this together literally our experiences may not be the same and um privilege and class are definitely showing us a great divide in that experience of the pandemic but even in the experience of this virus impacting all of us we're now comparing how we're all dealing with it on social media which is not helping no. And you know, in us men, Brie, uh, that comparing takes even a more dangerous form. It's called competing. That we've got to show that we're bigger, stronger, smarter, better looking. Uh, and I'm sure women compete too. But it's, it's front and center for the young male. He just doesn't know uh, who he is, unless he's winning at something. And this has taken over our politics and even our understanding of the gospel. We had to win at holiness. <laughs> it's like a contradiction in terms. Your need to win undoes your holiness. You can't connect. You can't be one with everybody else if you need to prove that you're holier than 
the Presbyterians are, are your neighbor. And there's nothing more embarrassing than when you catch yourself in your own holiness game and you realize that you're posturing uh, in that way. So we're going to transition here to our fourth uh, redemptive hope, which I'll read here. It is true that you are not in control. For can any of you, for all of your worrying, add a single moment to your span of life? Luke chapter 12, verse 25 to 26. And I've always gravitated to that, um, that verse. I think there's something just so poetic and singular about the the worry that we all carry with us at times and worry does also it also feels like um kind of one of the treasured pastimes of uh western people uh that have kind of the privilege to worry about the future and think through all those uh is my 401 okay my 401 okay wait am i saying that my 401k is it okay um clearly um, that's a big priority in your life (laughs) yeah i've got it down um (laughs) And that, but you know, there's also worries that are not without merit too. We, we're fully aware, as Bree mentioned earlier, of the inequity at play right now. We're seeing that be revealed even more so, um, and that each community has their own kind of worries that that they're holding tightly and and inviting into prayer. Do you have any guidance or examples um, on how one might shelter, uh, not shelter, how one might surrender? during this season of uh, sheltering in place so that we surrender into that flow of the spirit, which is, as you say, is that act of surrender is, is, is a trust that kind of releases the worries that they're again, not in my control, but I'm about something bigger surrendering into that flow of the spirit. Let me use this as a starting place. I don't know that it's the best. I probably should have said it at the very beginning of these five positive messages. But central to the male initiation rite was the sacred wounding of the young male. He had to be wounded. Now that goes against everything we think, you know, uh, and you as parents, my God, you don't want your little boys or girls to be wounded in any way. But this wounding was called the sacred wound. And, of course, this takes full frontal truth in the crucified Jesus, that even he seemingly had to be wounded. Uh, And it's how he deals with the wound that more or less determines whether he gets it, whether he gets... uh, that he's steering the ship or he can trust that the ship is being steered for him and that he can trust that he can allow now you know here's where i know psychologists are probably turning over they're saying you don't have a healthy personality who doesn't take control of their life and they're right but they're talking on Really, a rather low level, if I can say that. A necessary low level. Uh, I mean, that's what a first grade teacher, a second grade teacher, a high school teacher. Son, take control of your life. You've got to get the homework in. 
or whatever it might be. And that's true. But we're talking on the level of the soul. And on the level of the soul, there has to be a realization that I'm a part of a bigger, no, it's not bigness now, it's depth. Now, there's a part of me that exists uh, at my truest, deepest level, and I have to learn to draw upon it, to rely upon it. Uh, and that I don't, I don't have to be willful, as Gerald May used to put it, but my job is to learn how to be willing. It was a brilliant play between two different words. And I think most cultures teach the male, if he's successful, he has to be willful. He has to ram his way through, into, on top. Uh, and there's, there's a modicum of truth to that. For, your, for the little boy, or he has no ego boundaries. But once he starts on the spiritual journey, he needs a, a different sense of control. And he isn't doing it. It is done unto him. Now, until we cross that line, uh, I don't think we're on a spiritual journey. We're on a psychological journey, which is okay. And since I know both of you came from evangelical backgrounds, I want to say I think early evangelicalism probably taught that better than most progressive Christianity. Uh, you'll have to tell me if that's true. But at least I hear evangelicals talk that way. God has a plan for my life. God is in charge here. And they really mean it. Uh, would you agree with me? Yes, although it does get corrupted a bit because then it becomes the quick answer for everything that's happening right. in your life. Well, God has a plan. Right, like all good things, there's the subtleties of the goodness right, of it and then also the way it would get manipulated or uh, become a shackle. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. But I've just met, and I know you have too, enough sincere, pure-hearted people who really believe that. And I think they should. And the irony is that when you believe that, it's able to happen because you, you have a willing soul, a surrendered spirit. Let it be done unto me according to your word like the soul of Mary, something that didn't make sense logically. Uh, it is, you know, all spiritual things are, are very subtle. There's a good meaning to being in control. There's a bad meaning to being in control. There's mm -hmm. a good meaning of power. There's a bad meaning of power. And the way you come to the good is by falling on the bad a lot of times. But we're so afraid of doing it wrong or bad that we're almost afraid to use the language of, at least in your own heart, I know you're in charge here, Lord. I don't need to push the envelope. 
I'll state my case in this group discussion, and then I'll just back away, you know? And if it's your will, I, I can trust. I don't need to get angry. I don't need to get pushy. Uh, these are beautiful, peaceful people. If, if you think you're in control, you will become pushy. Mm. <laughs> and uh, not peaceful. So it's to your own advantage, I think. You'll burn out too, you know? Because it's interesting to me to notice how, how trust breeds that kind of radical trust that divine trust breeds humility and peace because it's the recognition that it's not all on me i'm 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 not the one who needs to make this all happen and it removes that sense of pride that i think creates that stress and worry so it's interesting how they kind of go together as well and I'm not sure if I've brought this up on, on the podcast, so you'll all have to forgive me if I've shared this story before. Do you remember that movie Contact with Jodie Foster? Do you remember, Do you remember that, remember movie? that movie? I think I did see it. Refresh. Is that a vampire She's... movie, Brie? <laughs> no, Paul Swanson, oh, okay. it is not. Thanks for outing my love of vampire shows <laughs> yet again. Um, but it is, it's actually a movie where she's listening for extraterrestrial life, signs of life, and they end up making contact. And they send these instructions for how to build a spaceship that will you know, bring a human to them to be able to communicate. Long story short, humans, as are known to do, uh, took the map and they said, well, there's clearly no seat in this spaceship. We need to, they made a mistake. Uh, aliens don't know what they're doing. We're obviously much more intelligent. So they changed the plan and they added a seat inside the spaceship. So Jodie Foster's in the seat and she's rocketing up into space and her whole body is just like uh, shaking really bad and it's jarring and she's horribly uncomfortable and she sees her necklace slowly start to float and she realizes, oh, this jarring I'm experiencing is because we built this seat and we never needed a seat in the spaceship. The aliens were right. So she unbuckles herself and just floats and is totally comfortable and at peace and fine. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought of that moment. And now you're all going to have to Netflix contact to watch it. But I've thought about that moment in relation to trust, that that moment of divine trust is that recognition that we don't know everything and that oftentimes our worry is this self-imposed seat in a spaceship that didn't need to be there in the first place that's making it more difficult for us. I don't know if that made sense at all, but that experience of, of unbuckling from my worry and floating into trust, um, I do think is a gift from, from some of what I grew up with. Because it's that personal connection to the divine that I feel like I am able to fall into in moments like this when I'm completely out of control. You know, T.S. Eliot, I think it's in the four quartets, uh, says, Lord, maybe it's Ash Wednesday, I'm not sure. Teach us to care and not to care. That sounds like just a throwaway line, but it's brilliant. The not caring 
is needed to balance out the caring or you become obsessed with your caring, your way of doing it, you know, your understanding. And if you can keep caring balanced with letting go, let's call it that. I still want you to keep caring, but your grasp on events and judgments, it becomes lighter and lighter, less graspy, actually. So it's probably, for many of us, one of the hardest of the five messages, to give up control. And of course, we're all going to have to do it on our deathbed if we have that gift of having a conscious death. So we might as well practice. <laughs> practice now so we'll be real good at it. And that hopeful word was brought to you by Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a... I do have a question with what you're saying, though, um, about practicing letting go, which is that, you know, in this moment, uh, one of the things that's come up for so many of us is a, a sense of reckoning, a clearing of the fog of confusion and a deep ache to, to reconcile with those that we may be estranged from in, in the face of the fragility of our lives in this moment. I've heard from so many people gosh, I haven't spoken to my dad in 20 years, but I, I just, I feel like I need to reach out right now. Um, can you give us a word about forgiveness and about that desire? Um, how, how can we do that work even if we can't make contact with that loved one or if we didn't get a chance to say goodbye? That's beautiful that you connect that with letting go because that's what it is. It is a an act of giving up control. And again, note how you, you're letting go of counting. Uh, I deserve this from him, or I didn't get this from her. I've said many times, going back to my early years in the New Jerusalem community, uh, I talked about forgiveness so much because there were so many hurt love relationships and friendships among those young people growing up, that, that I felt the whole gospel might just be forgiveness. Um, and someone told me yesterday, I'm not making this up, they said the only line that they remembered from me years later was when I said, uh, it's not just forgiveness of this or that, it's forgiving reality. <laughs> uh, uh, an ultimate forgiving reality for being reality, <sighs> for being what it is, for being so stupid, so absurd, so unjust, so wrong, so unfair. So, I mean, as a one, I can just go down the whole list, and I can't get trapped there. So there's individual forgiveness, and there you practice and you learn universal forgiveness uh, for this broken world. Uh, it seems to me you can almost see the, the outstretched arms of Jesus as saying that. I forgive all of it, all of it. Uh, I hold on to no part of it in judgment. Uh, 
I think that's what God has to do to preserve the universe. If God is counting, if I'm going to talk about us, that we need to stop counting, then God, who is forgiveness itself, God must have stopped counting at the very beginning. <laughs> and even stopped counting how many stars or how many galaxies or he just keeps they just keep proliferating and he says well i can deal with that one and that one's nice and let that one fly out and uh, i can i can hold it all in my embrace it's uh, it gives me great peace to think that way so thanks for bringing it up reed yeah, that was a lovely question and response to Richard, that, that image and that metaphor of, of God forgiving all from the beginning. It, 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 and it brings to mind that God has complete beginner's mind, always ready to begin again and, and, and offer love and forgiveness. So th this, this really connects well to the, the fifth uh, initiation tenet uh, here, which I'll read here. It is true that you're going to die and yet, I am certain of this, neither death nor life, nothing that exists, nothing still to come, not any power, not any height nor depth, nor any created thing can ever come between us and the love of God, which of course is from Romans 8, 38 to 39. And um, taking this tenet and, and letting it kind of wash over us in these times, uh, where there is this eternality where nothing can separate us from from God, even death. And I know right now, Richard, for some friends and some folks in my community, that this this whole process of initiation and this particular piece is kind of muted for them, just like how I muted myself a moment ago. And that they can't trust the initiation. They don't feel like they can trust the initiation process. That this love of God that's seated in all of us and all things is covered over and not to be believed because of that absurdity of reality that we're experiencing now. So when you, if you ever feel this way, if you're counseling someone who's kind of in that season of this muted, the sense of the eternality of the love of God being muted, what would you offer as a consolation as they, they, they sit in their own quarantine and pandemic, trying to let this initiation process take hold of them, but there's still that fear of what we've been previously talking about, about surrender and trust. It was apparently the heart of the initiation experience, making the young boy who thinks he's uh, untouchable, eternal, <laughs> indestructible. And God gives the young person, girl too, that sense that they're going to be around forever. He, he hides God hides our death from us, and that's the mercy of God. It only becomes real uh, years later. Uh, but they felt it necessary to communicate that early, as we said in the first one, somewhere between 13 and 17, to give the young boy and young girl a realization that this thing called life was only temporary. Uh, some had to dig their grave and sleep in it one night. 
I think I mentioned the uh, you came from the ashes and you'll return to the ashes, uh, which became Ash Wednesday. Some experience of your own mortality. Uh, and of course that depended upon the readiness of the person to allow that to, to assault them, to realize that. Usually most of us don't realize the reality of death till one person, our, our pet, uh, very close to us dies. That's when it starts to seep in. And uh, that's when the fallibility of life uh, starts becoming real. It overwhelms the psyche. A lot, of, a lot of young people can't handle it and never really recover from this ultimate uh, absurdity called death. Uh, that we have no control over, that, that happens to everybody, and yet for some reason we think it will not happen to us. Uh, when I was a young man, I read Ernest Becker's book, uh, The Denial of Death. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Was it in the 70s or 60s? I'm not sure. <clears throat> and... Uh, I remember just having to close it again and again uh, as I read my little paperback version. It's a heavy book, but uh, it just it was too much to take. He claimed that the, the whole human adventure of war and money and reproduction and fame is all your your denial of death project to say i i will be eternal i will eternalize myself through my children through my through writing books through uh you know building this temple or whatever it might be it, it's one of those books that changes everybody who ever reads it uh, I don't know if you've ever been exposed to it, but he makes the point that, that this fifth message tries to make. And that our positive statement of it, that there's something more powerful than this final judgment on life, which is death, uh, that the final judgment is the infinity of love. Love is stronger than death. Life is stronger than death. This is the meaning of the resurrection. This is the meaning of everybody who makes their final leap of faith on their deathbed. It, it has to take that shape. Okay, here we go. And I know I'm not perfect. I know I didn't do it right all the time. But I'm going to leap into love. I'm going to leap into trust in love. Do you see how trust becomes so central? You mentioned it before, Paul. And it's so unfortunate that most people were trained to translate the word, uh, or think of the word faith, meaning belief. And I don't think that's the, the biblical 
tone of the word. It's, it's trust. It's not believing ideas. It's trusting goodness. It's trusting God to be good. It's trusting that my deepest self is good. It's trusting that reality is good, very good, despite all the evidence to the contrary. That's your final leap of faith. Um, what a disservice we did by making people think faith was believing in dogmas. That, that won't serve you well, unless the dogma you believed was that God was infinite love. That one will work. But that wasn't usually the case. It was believing second-level uh, truths, not those first-level truths that are, are, our soul relies upon, that it is a benevolent universe, God is benevolent, and God has granted that benevolence to me undeservedly unwarranted and of course that made Paul create that word grace it's all about grace grace is everything it's, if forgiveness is the whole message then grace is the whole message they're they're almost the same word it's so powerful to reflect on that <laughs> and to consider you know in this journey you've been taking us on in, in looking at these different initiations, I can feel that there's this overarching uh, journey from the isolated separate me to the deeply trusting and connected we. And in that place of we-ness is that, that idea that, that nothing can come between us and the love of God. And in, in the same way, we share that connection too with each other, with this planet. And it, it invites a deep breath <laughs> in a moment when there is so much anxiety and we feel so out of control to consider these experiences that we're going through daily and to have compassion for ourselves, for the experiences and the emotions that are coming up daily as we continue to face this with uncertainty, how we are being invited into this initiation, into the we, the we-ness of life the benevolent weeness. Um, and Richard, as this week in particular is Holy Week, I wonder if you can um, offer us just a word in, in reflection. Um, in, in closing in prayer, in a blessing of this whole initiation process, in, and also in light of what this week represents for so many who are celebrating at home, um, away from their parishes, their communities, um, trying to pull it together with their families as best we can. Would you offer us a blessing and a, and a word of prayer in closing on this powerful journey of initiation you've led us in? Reality has a cruciform shape. Reality is signed with the cross. And therefore... It is signed with resurrection. Uh, there are two sides of the same coin. And Lord, we thank you that you have signed us with the cross that allows us to trust both death and resurrection, both darkness and light, 
both our littleness and our greatness. Uh, and not to be afraid of either one of them. Now we can live in the whole universe. We can live in the wholeness that is you. We can live initiated into reality. And we don't have to create our own reality. It will always be so much smaller than that. So we thank you for this week of initiation. On this, I don't know when you'll hear this, but we're recording it on Holy Thursday. And tomorrow we begin the great walk uh, through passion, death. Well, we begin tonight, actually. All Jewish feasts began on the eve through passion, death, and resurrection. So may we walk at least somewhat consciously, willingly, lovingly. And this year especially, when the entire planet is suffering from the same thing, this global pandemic, somehow this message is being driven home to us that we're all in this together, that global truth is outweighing individual truth. This might be very good for us to know. We thank you, loving God. We thank you for the gift of the gospel. We thank you for giving us the faith to live under the sign of the cross and the sign of resurrection. We offer our prayer in Jesus' name today. Amen. 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 Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.